The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. My name is Michael Duffy. I'm a member of the All Souls Forum Committee. It's the mission of the forum to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and to promote critical thinking. We were scheduled to have Mayor Lucas with us this morning, but he unfortunately had to reschedule at the last minute, so pinch-hitting for him today will be Spencer Graves, who will talk on the topic of uh, the expertise, or lack thereof, of military and national defense military uh, leaders. He is a uh, PhD statistician, served six years in the Air Force during the Vietnam era, and is uh, a self-taught expert in various national security issues, which he'll talk about this morning. He'll talk for about 35 or 40 minutes, at which point we'll turn off the mic and ask for questions and comments. Uh, so with that, Spencer, take it away. Uh, and and just a reminder for those um, interested in Mayor Luke, her talk is scheduled for April 2. So. So uh, I published a piece on Wikiversity uh, last December entitled um, Expertise of Military Leaders and National Security Experts. And when uh, Mayor Lucas rescheduled and they couldn't find somebody else, I said, me. So the problem here, let's... There are two kinds of expertise, according to research literature, dating, dating back to the 1950s, ultimately. One is expert intuition that is acquired by learning from frequent, rapid, high-quality feedback. The other is obtained from mastery of a body of, uh, of literature. And uh, the other experts, according to research that I'll uh, discuss in a, in a moment, uh, can actually be beaten by simple rules of thumb developed by intelligent lay people. National security requires expertise in how to secure broadly shared peace and prosperity for the long term. But no one can obtain expertise, uh, intuitive expertise on anything for the long term. And in particular, military and political leaders are not selected uh, on those grounds. So the research, I first became aware of this from, from, reaching, uh, from reading Danya Kahneman's 2011 book on thinking fast and slow. Let me tell you about Kahneman. I became aware of his career in the 70s. Uh, he was a research psychologist. He won the no 2002 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics, even though he is not an economist. He invented all kinds of ways of asking people questions that exposed fundamental flaws in human judgment. And in so doing, he was a major leader in creating what is now called behavioral economics that is a subfield in the intersection between human psychology and economics. And so that's why he won the Nobel Prize in economics. He wrote, and this book came out in 2011, Thinking, comma, Fast and Slow. The fast 
thinking, he says, we got too many decisions to make. We make most of them by intuition. All right. Rules of thumb that we've kind of developed and maybe you have, maybe even are, are not consciously aware of them. We're capable of thought, careful thought analysis, what he calls slow thinking, but we rarely do it. Most, most people uh, think they know more than they do. That's a documented phenomenon, all right? And, and experts are not immune from that. They, they're as likely as anybody else, and maybe even more likely, to be over to think they know more than they actually do. So a few years before this book came out, uh, Daniel Kahneman published a paper uh, where he said that most experts can be beaten by simple rules of thumb develop, uh, developed by intelligent lay people. And around the same time, a guy named Gary Klein published a paper that said basically the exact opposite. And Kahneman, being a serious scientist, reached out to Klein and said, can we collaborate, figure out when uh, the circumstances under which you're right and the circumstances under which I'm right? And in his 2011 book, he called it his most productive adversarial collaboration. In, um, Who 009, they published a joint paper, Conditions for Intuitive Expertise, a Failure to Disagree. And what they came up with is my line right there. Expert expert intuition is gained by learning from frequent, rapid, high-quality feedback. And in a book that Kahneman and two authors published in uh, 2021, entitled Noise, a Flaw in Human Judgment, they call other experts respect experts. They earn the respect of their peers by uh, um, displaying a mastery of the literature in that field. Whether they're able to translate that into a, a sensible judgments is a different question. One of their examples was, was, is, is, is commonly known as refugee roulette. A few years earlier, 2007, I think, um, uh, a few uh, researchers uh, found that um, in different asylum judges in the same jurisdiction with cases assigned at random, 5% of the cases uh, sent to one judge were approved, 88% sent to a different judge was, was approved. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty appalling. Um, not all experts, unfortunately, display this level of noise or random uh, variability. But uh, noise audits, which Hanuman and his co-authors documented in their 2011 book, um, have documented dramatic, routinely document, have documented dramatically more um, variability than most experts and their managers uh, believe. So let me just talk about what, what does he mean by noise? Noise is, is another term they use for variability. So uh, low noise means you've got a tight cluster. Um, 
uh, your judgments are pretty repeatable between judges and within the same judge, uh, evaluating similar cases, making similar decisions at different points in time. High noise is the opposite. Uh, uh, means, it means that the, the judges can, and they document, judgments vary by time of day, by the weather, by whether or not their favorite sports team won or lost on the previous day. Uh, uh, bias and uh, is a different question. There's a term, unbiased means that on average, they're on target. So you can have, um, uh, you can be unbiased and low noise. That's the best situation. You can be unbiased with high noise. That's not very good. Uh, you can be biased with low noise or biased with high noise. Um, but if you don't know what the target is, you can still judge the noise. And so that's what, that's what they, Kahneman uh, and his co-authors, collaborators do. Uh, with noise audits and people they consult with. Let me talk about the War of 1812 because this is one of my one of my um, interesting uh, favorite case studies. In 1812, U.S. President James Madison, former his predecessor, uh, former President Thomas Jefferson, and majorities in the U.S. House and Senate all agreed that if we only set the U.S. Army into Canada, the Canadians would flock to us, and Canada would become part of the United States. It didn't happen. It did not happen. We sent the U.S. Army up there. They killed people, destroyed property, and made enemies. And um, a French, uh, uh, a Canadian uh, intellectual, a uh, leading ca Canadian intellectual of the 20th century named Pierre Beton uh, claims that that fact created that the War of 1812 created a Canadian national identity that had not existed before. That's a I've got a copy here of a French language translation of a book he wrote on the invasion of Canada on the War of 1812 that documented that. Now, that's not the universal consensus among Canadian intellectuals, but I can tell you that it's it certainly resonates with me because I was doing research starting in 1995 on the spectacular collapse of the Soviet bloc almost without firing a shot. I felt there was something to be learned from that that I was not hearing. And so I published a paper in 2005 entitled The Impact of Violent and Nonviolent Action on Constructed Realities and Conflict, basically talking about the evolution of group identity in conflict, and what Pierre Bertrand describes in uh, the invasion of Canada uh, matches that uh, my my understanding of that. So, what happened in the War of eighteen twelve? Well, suddenly, you know, the French Canadians did not much like having to swear allegiance to Mad King George. They would much prefer to swear allegiance to the King of France, but that was not an option after the uh, after the um, French and Indian War that was started, by the way, by George Washington. Okay, um, and so uh, they all got together. Suddenly, 
suddenly the French Canadians realized that their English-speaking Canadian neighbors were a whole lot more sensible than the crazy criminals from south of the border. And they joined the British Army in droves. They got on British naval ships. They sailed up the Potomac. They sacked Washington, D.C., burned the White House to the ground, sailed up, uh, sailed up to Chesapeake and tried to do the same thing. Baltimore and Fort McHenry, or maybe um, the U.S. Navy with, with Fort McHenry's help, right, managed to prevent that from happening. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? A young 35-year-old Francis Scott Key was a prisoner of war on one of those Navy vessels and watched the whole thing develop and was so impressed that the Stars and Stripes were still flying over Fort McHenry the following morning. All right. That was one of the big successes of the War of 1812. Right. <laughs> After that, the British agreed to let us have our country back. If we also agreed to not bother them about um, impressing sailors off U.S. flag vessels, which was officially the, the, the original start of the, of the war. Let's go on, if I can. Okay, 1998 bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, August 7th. In June, a couple of months earlier, the government of Afghanistan had agreed with the Saudis to extradite Osama bin Laden uh, to stand trial for treason in Saudi Arabia. But he was surrounded by a bunch of armed men. And it, it was, the Afghan government needed, you know, a couple of months to... Um, to, to separate him from his armed guards. And so they agreed to turn him over in, in uh, September. And then they uh, the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed. Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility. Muslim clerics all over the world roundly condemned Al-Qaeda and bin Laden for uh, inappropriate and excessive violence, deviling the holiest name of Islam. Until 13 days later, the U.S. retaliated by bombing a pharmaceutical plant uh, in Sudan and, um, and uh, al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. And Muslim public opinion the world over turned 180 degrees. Suddenly, bin Laden and al-Qaeda were like Robin Hood in, in Sherwood Forest, all right? Standing up to what they saw as an evil empire, the United States. Uh, money had dried up and new recruits were, uh, were already on the downward trend and it dried up between August 7 and 20. Suddenly, money and new recruits started flowing in. And, and uh, even wealthy Saudis managed to um, donate to al-Qaeda through various circuitous means. Um, at least the wife of the Saudi ambassador to the United States got involved. There were employees of the Saudi embassy uh, and consulates in the United States that were involved. 
1999, an America West flight went, made an emergency landing when two Saudis tried to break into the cockpit. They produced, uh, they showed the FBI um, tickets apparently paid by the Saudi uh, embassy in Washington, D.C., and the FBI agents let them go. The, when that came up to the um, Joint House and Senate Committee investigating intelligence failures uh, in 9-11, um, Senator Graham from Florida later said that the FBI engaged in aggressive deception to, provide it, to try to prevent the, the committee from knowing this. We know this because, because there's an annex to that committee report called the 28 pages that was classified on because President George W. Bush insisted on it, declassified in 2016 by President Obama. And that's how we've got uh, substantial documentation on that part of it. The Central Intelligence Agency, who had been responsible for tracking bin Laden between 1996 and 1999, later published three books about that experience. Um, and one of them, he said that the United States became bin Laden's only indispensable ally. Uh, if, so the claim I've seen in the literature, and I'll talk uh, about how I got that in just a moment, yeah, I claim that if Clinton had treated those embassy bombings as a law enforcement issue, bin Laden would have been extradited to Saudi Arabia in September of 1998. Al-Qaeda would most certainly have, almost certainly have substantially disappeared. The USS Cole would not have been uh, bombed in 2000. The September 11th um, attacks in 2001 would almost certainly not have occurred. They wouldn't have had the people or the money to do it, right? So I got this from a, um, a, a guy named John Mueller. Let me, uh, let me back up here just a moment. A liter I'm a compulsive fact checker. A literature search is never complete. And I've been worried about this since 2001, September 11th. All right. I went out when I saw the, the things I said, I hope the U.S. does not use this as an excuse to go to war. So I was looking at several various times for uh, doing a research literature search on um, on extraditing bin Laden. And earlier I had not found anything, but. Ten months ago or so, I decided to try again, and this time I found a a paper on the on the Cato Institute website. The Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank. Um, the stupidity no entitled "What if the U.S. did not go to war in Afghanistan after 9/11?" Written by a guy named John Miller. Well, the that paper on the Cato Institute website did not cite any sources. I'm a, you know, if you're going to say something that's that different from the mainstream, I want to see more evidence and support for that. So, but I, it was important to me. So I went and looked for John Mueller, and there's a Wikipedia article on him, and he turns out to be a very prolific researcher, uh, careful guy, all right, adjunct professor at Ohio State. Early in 2021, he published a book entitled The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case 
for complacency. The basic thesis that I got from that book was he claims that the best thing the United States did during the Cold War was nothing. Between the fall of Saigon in 1975 and the inauguration of President Reagan in 1981, the U.S. fell into something like an interventionist funk, where we mostly stopped sending U.S. military into foreign countries. Uh, and um, I thought this is wow. So when the Foreign Forum Committee met um, earlier this year, I uh, said, gee, or last year, I guess, um, I said, what about this? And they said, yeah, let's do that. And I contacted Mullah, and he agreed. And so he's scheduled to address All Souls Forum March 26th. Okay. Um, I, I hope we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to learn what he has to say. So let me talk about there's not a massive amount of research on violence and nonviolence. I have a website called effectivedefense.org. Effective defense to me means securing peace and broadly shared peace and um, prosperity for the long term. Effective defense, when it's used by people in the military industrial complex, means how to uh, deliver death and destruction to designated targets more quickly, quicker and more reliable with less uh, immediate threat to our own people. Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan <clears throat> compiled a database that was very different of all the major violent and nonviolent governmental change efforts of the 20th century. Excuse me, over 300 of them. 25% of the violent revolutions were successful. 54% of the nonviolent ones were. So at least during that period, you were twice as likely to be successful with nonviolence as with violence. What's going on? Well, from my perspective, when people are killed and property is destroyed, the apparent perpetrators often make enemies, and it's, and it's easier to attract, attract recruits and it's, uh, if you're nonviolent, and it's easy to attract recruits for your opposition if you're violent. Let's talk about World Wars One and Two. McChesney and Nichols. Robert McChesney spoke at also also also's farm here a few years ago. In one of his books, he says, uh, after World War Two, General Eisenhower in Europe, in charge of the occupation forces in Europe, and General Douglas MacArthur in charge of occupation forces in Japan, forced the post-fascist governments to subsidize a vigorous, diverse, adversarial press. Uh, and they suggest that this helps explains why the period following World War II has been so dramatically different from the 20 years uh, that followed World War I. I mean, clearly, this media, uh, subsidized media, is not the only thing. By the way, 
They also talk about the U.S. Postal Service Act of 1792 that provided uh, substantial subsidies for newspapers in the early days of the Republic. And I can talk about that, but um, I think there's not time for that at this moment. McChesney and Nichols also say that after, quote, mission accomplished in Iraq, the United States forced uh, press censorship on the Iraqi press. So basically the attitude was if you're not, if you don't rubber stamp, uh, make the, uh, um, the occupation look good, you must be uh, a support of Saddam. Now, I have a rule of political economy that basically says that corruption expands to consume the available money. And in this case, uh, corruption expanded dramatically uh, and was not exposed. And so it grew until uh, the Islamic State, with 1,500 men, defeated security forces in Mosul um, with a paper strength of 60,000. Now, a lot of those 60,000 weren't there. The top brass were pocketing a bunch of the money. And, and the ones that were there were, were, were bribing their um, uh, company-grade officers so that they wouldn't have to show up for training. So, so when, when, when 1,500 men uh, showed up and wanted to fight, it, they ran like jackrabbits. Okay, so let's get back to re, just go back and say, what am I talking about here? All right, there are two kinds of expertise. There's, uh, there's the, um, uh, there's the uh, expert opinion, which is acquired by learning from frequent, rapid, high-quality feedback. And there's uh, the respect experts that, uh, that gain respect by command of an established body of research. But the respect experts don't necessarily um, uh, have good intuition. Uh, and... Um, and uh, so there's a body of literature that says that they can be beaten by simple heuristics, in particular, simple rules of thumb developed even by intelligent lay people. National security requires expertise in how to secure broadly shared peace and prosperity for the long term. Uh, military leaders in combat get can get can get frequent rapid high-quality feedback on how to deliver death and destruction to designated targets. Whether that's smart is a different question, all right? They cannot get frequent, rapid, high-quality feedback on how to build broadly shared peace and prosperity for the long term. Similarly, politicians and national security experts can get frequent, rapid, high-quality feedback on how to impress um, the people who control political campaign contributions and the money for the media. Okay, I've claimed for years that campaign contributions uh, would not be an issue if we had a media that exposed um, what the politicians actually did with that money. All right. Um, so, and, and, and we, they do not get frequent, ha rapid, high-quality feedback on how to build broadly shared peace and prosperity for the long term. That's not how they're selected. So here's my provocative question. Are today's political and, and military leaders smarter than Thomas Jefferson? Well, I have to, 
tell you that I'm kind of impressed with uh, with President Biden. He's resisted sending the U.S. military into Ukraine, um, uh, and he's focused instead on helping Ukraine fight like the Afghans fought against the Soviet Union in the 1980s and against U.S.-led forces uh, between 2001 and 2021. Putin, by the way, has noted. Uh, has threatened to use nuclear weapons and has noted that it would, if he does, it will not be unprecedented, quoting uh, the U.S. use uh, bombings of, of, uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Meanwhile, Biden's predecessors have been bent on expanding NATO, threatening Russia. Um, they've canceled. Uh, major arms control treaties. They've initiated a new arms race with Russia and China, quote, renovating the nuclear arsenals and developing hypersonic weapons that reduce the time leaders have to use their nukes or lose them. Putin's invasion of Ukraine cannot be excused, but it can be understood. Uh, And that's documented in a book uh, by Benjamin and Davies that came out last year um, uh, on uh, on the war in the Ukraine, how to make sense of a senseless conflict. And in fact, in, in early December, Davies was in this room talking about that book, and I interviewed him for Radioactive Magazine um, uh, on KKFI on the, the following day. Let's talk about the 1983 Soviet nuclear false alarm incident. In the early 80s, the Soviet leadership believed that the United States President Reagan was developing a nuclear first strike capability and was crazy enough to use it. They were so concerned about this that um, in in 83, September 1, Korean Airlines Flight 007 strayed over Soviet airspace at the southern end of Sakhalin Island um, and was shot out of the sky, killing everyone on board, 270 people more or less. Less than a month later, um, there was a false alarm. There There was an alarm at a Soviet command post that was monitoring for launches of U.S. ICBMs, International uh, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Um, So it was a major problem. Uh, And uh, it turns out that the guy on, on in charge was a Lieutenant Colonel Petrov. And, and the, the radar system said first there was one missile, one ICBM launched. And he looked at that. And he thought, that's odd. Is the, and then it was followed by four more. And he said, you know, if the U.S. were going to launch a first strike, they wouldn't do it with five ICBMs. And then he remembered that this command post was quite new. Um, and he wondered if this might be a technical malfunction, and he waited for the confirmation from 
radar sites that were um, farther away and not as uh, wouldn't detect it as quickly, but should be able to detect it. And when that didn't come, you know, then he filed a report, right? Uh, and uh, but he was quietly chastised for not following orders. Uh, he was not promoted, uh, and he left the military fairly, you know, not whatever. So in any case, with all this background, last Tuesday. Uh, um, and, uh, and by the way, I did w one more point about uh, one more point about this Soviet nuclear false alarm. We are shortening the response time for uh, the uh, potential enemy to use their nukes or lose them by the hypersonic missiles that we've been developing. So, with that background, the bulletin of the atomic scientists last Tuesday updated their famous. Uh, doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight, which basically says that an existential uh, crisis, possible Armageddon, um, is is closer than it has ever been in their judgment. This doomsday clock started in 1947, set at seven minutes to midnight. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it, it, they adjusted it to, to 17 minutes. Uh, Two or three years ago, uh, with with um, Trump canceling arms control treaties and starting um, the renovation program that I talked about, um, they uh, they cut it to a hundred seconds to midnight. Now it's ninety seconds to midnight. Um, and Russia and uh, the U.S. have over 5,000 nuclear weapons each. Um, fifth, over 1,500 of them are deployed on each side. If a nuclear war actually starts, it will be exceedingly difficult to stop. Um, while either side has the means to resist. So since the 1980s, uh, climatologists in the U.S. and um, Russia, the Soviet Union, have been simulating nuclear war. If you blow off a thousand weapons or nuclear weapons or two thousand, and they're all underground or they're in the desert or whatever. Um, you're not going to have a big impact on, on climate. But if you target a bunch of cities, you're, they have paper and wood and plastics and all that stuff burns, right? Uh, and you get smoke, uh, firestorms going to the stratosphere uh, where rain clouds rarely form and, and the smoke and soot covers the earth. Uh, and depresses crop yields worldwide. Uh, and the latest simulation report came out last August. They had 24 different scenarios. Um, this one is one of their worst. If the U they said that if the predicted, if the U.S. and the Soviet Union went to uh, uh, engage in a nuclear exchange, the likely result is that five billion people, over 60% of humanity, would starve to death if they did not die of something else sooner. 
Uh, earlier last year, I published a piece on Wikiversity entitled Responding to a Nuclear Attack, in which I claim the absolute worst response to a nuclear attack is nuclear. Why? Because you take a really terrible situation and you make it dramatically worse. Okay? Government secrecy. We need some government secrecy. We do not need government bureaucrats lying to Congress and the American public. Uh, Supreme Court decision, U.S. versus Reynolds, 1953, says that no judge in the United States has the authority to question a claim of national security by a U.S. government official. Richard Barlow, young man, was a bright intelligence agent working in the Pentagon in 1989, read in the news uh, that um, uh, one of a high-level uh, Pentagon official had uh, told Congress things that he knew were dramatically untrue and things that documents that he'd written himself. He told his managers in uh, uh, the Pentagon that they should not lie to Congress. He was fired and his career was destroyed. Dan Hale is in prison for releasing a former drone operator. Is in prison today in Illinois, a U.S. federal prison, uh, scheduled to, to be released um, next year, July 5th, um, for releasing documentation that 90% of people killed in U.S. drone strikes in a certain six month period were not the intended target. Okay, that information was classified. Now, why was it classified? Give me a break. It's not classified to keep it from the enemy. It's classified to keep it from the United States Congress and from you and me. That's, that's at least my judgment. A year ago, the New York Times published an article about a page one article talking about uh, a drone operator who had committed, su committed suicide. One, uh, it turns out that one day he was told to kill somebody who was the same person he killed the previous day. He said, wait a minute. I killed him yesterday. No, we got the wrong guy. Oh, oh, oh. And the New York Times made a big deal out of this. Did not mention Dan Hale. I published... Uh, a little piece on the peaceworkskc.org uh, saying the New York Times only has the guts to shoot the wounded. Matthew Connolly, a new book out, uh, scheduled to be released on Valentine's Day, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. I looked at the book on Amazon. I was able to see uh, the... the um, Table of contents. It's uh, over 500 pages, almost 100 pages of notes. I'm uh, Connolly has a big reputation. I'm I'm planning to get that book. So is this secrecy making us safer? I don't think so. So in some expert intuition is acquired by learning from frequent, rapid, high quality feedback. Um, the other experts who who gain a command of a certain body of knowledge and the respect of their peers, 
um, can be beaten by simple rules of thumb developed by intelligent lay people according to a substantial body of research dating back to the 1950s at least. National security requires expertise in how to secure broadly shared peace and prosperity for the long term. The military and political leaders are not selected for the long term. Finally, we need media with fewer conflicts of interest, funded to support democracy, not major advertisers, and not managed by government nor corporate bureaucrats. Spencer, thank you very much. Uh, please step up to the microphone if you have questions. Thank you, Spencer, for a very interesting presentation. And I can think of a lot of questions, but the most important one I have to ask you was your statement that those who own nuclear weapons must use them or lose them. So exactly who are you talking about and in what way would they use them to keep them? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so here you are. If you're, if, whether you, I was talking with a guy only yesterday who was, who was talking about um, uh, the Soviet Union and the early, uh, around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis and before, all right? And the Soviet Union at that time, and we kind of knew that, but we didn't put that in the press, only had five ICBMs, all right? But they had a whole bunch of intermediate-range nuclear missiles. So the question was, um, yes, we could take out all their five ICBMs, but we were not going to take out all 100 IRBMs. Uh, and, and if we launched a nuclear first strike, which was certainly uh, considered in the Pentagon at that time, um, would that, um, that would take out all the, all the, you know, so the Soviets couldn't use those weapons. Um, but, so I think your statement really referred to in the event of conflict, you better use them or your own would be destroyed. Exactly Yeah, right. thank you. Because I thought you were talking about during peacetime. Be no, 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 no. If you, if, you got, if you got attacked, right? If you were, if you believed that you were under attack, like uh, like the Soviets did in 1983, they would have to use their nuclear weapons or potentially lose them. You uh, suggested that uh, Putin was perhaps somewhat justified in attacking Ukraine because the U.S. had uh, was going or the West was going to expand. NATO, and he felt threatened. Well, it occurs to me that by invading Ukraine, he learned two things. One, that Ukraine doesn't want anything to do with Russia, the vast majority of them. Uh, and uh, secondly, that his army is backward and incompetent. So wouldn't he then be a perfect example of a so-called expert who doesn't know what he's talking about or doing? It sounds plausible to me. Sounds plausible to me. Anybody else? Hey, Spencer. Thanks for being here, And I want to say you um, said that they cannot develop, the military cannot develop expertise for the long-term peace, right? Well, I'd say they do not, right? I mean, what would it take to change the, uh, from that you cannot to well, this is how would what what needs to change? Um, build a build databases like uh, 
like um, uh, a Chenoweth, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, okay? Um, Stanley McChrystal, uh, who was, held senior positions in Iraq, was uh, in charge of U.S.-led operations in, in Afghanistan for a while. Uh, came out with a book in 2021, I think, entitled Risk. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is uh, kinds of things that I'm talking about. He's looking at the long term uh, and realizing that a lot of what we did for short-term military advantage backfired. One of my one of my pieces on Wikiversity that I didn't mention is entitled The Great American Paradox. So here's the paradox. Virtually every successful violent revolutions in human history, with the exception of the American Revolution, can arguably uh, uh, be said to replace one brutal repressive system with another. So why did we get, how did we wind up with George Washington um, and not Napoleon or Paul Pot or Joe Stalin or Chairman Mao, right? There are several answers to that. One was George Washington was as much a politician, had been schooled in the House of Burgesses of the, of the um, Virginia, in addition to being a military man. And another is the U.S. Postal Service Act of 1792 that I mentioned, that that created um, an adversarial press that helped uh, that helped that. But but the primary thing was was that we already had a functioning uh, uh, democracy. Um, not quite 60 percent of adult white males could vote before the revolution, uh, and just over 60 percent could vote after the revolution. And the increase was due to nonviolent political action, writing new constitutions for the, for the brand new states to replace the, the constitutions that had in colonies. Yes. Thanks for the question. Do you have any information about how the United States undermined the Minsk agreements regarding Ukraine that the Europeans had negotiated, which was our official policy, you know, let Europe handle it. And uh, yeah, I, I have no information on that. That would be a question for John Muller in, in, when he's here in March. Well, I, I have sent a message to uh, former President Obama asking uh -huh. him if he had any second thoughts about that. Um, and I haven't gotten a response yet, but no, no surprise. Send a, send an email to uh, John Miller. You can find his email on the web and 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 send him and thank him for coming for agreeing to come and talk to us about this. Good morning. Um, really interesting talk. The um, Netflix has a film out about uh, Martha Mitchell and being Martha Martha Mitchell, uh, and it seems to me that. Uh, how do you how do you suppose in the American public, or we should be addressing the idea that when truth comes forward, that the powers that be automatically condemn that person and and uh, and treat them as a as a, a a crazy upstart? Well, that gets to the question of the media. We need 
uh, a diverse, cacophonous, adversarial press. Uh, McChesney uh, and Nichols have, uh, especially in, in 2011 and 2012, suggested that we ought to devote 15 hundreds of a percent of GDP, which is roughly $100 per person, to, to be distributed to local news nonprofits via elections. Not He doesn't want government bureaucrats nor corporate bureaucrats deciding how that money get, gets distributed. He wants elections. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the right answer. That's that's a proposal life uh, support. It's a uh, hundred dollars per person per year. Is by the way, what you could get from um, the budget of uh, the city of Kansas City, Missouri, um, by matching what the city spends on accounting um, uh, and advertising and media and public relations. And I think uh, I've also talked about. There's a, we account for expenditures to the last penny in government services and in nonprofits, but the accounting for results rarely gets more than lip service. That is a major deficiency. And so, um, so we have all kinds of programs that are for kids and for, for whoever, um, psychotherapy and so forth, that, that are providing valuable services, but are not funded at 100% of the needs because they do not have the evidence uh, to counter the people who say that what they're doing is, is wasteful. Um, my, my comment or response or secondary question is that, uh, is that when we were teaching about critical thinking or wanting to promote critical thinking here, um, do you suppose that it's actually, we ought to be as part of that process, promoting the idea that when people are marginalized by media or by anyone, that uh, we should take that marginalization as a grain of salt, with a grain of salt. So there's, um, I've been doing a lit search recently on, uh, on criminology and the criminology professors at UMKC. There was, um, a U.S. News and World Report published uh, a, um, a list of the top 40 universities in the U.S. on um, criminal justice and criminology. Uh, number 11 was um, the University of Missouri at St. Louis. And two of the criminology professors at UMKC are, are graduates from that school. Um, now I now I'm forgetting. Um, so talking about marginalization. So the the real thing in marginalization is is that people who are marginalized are mistreated by the entire system, and especially if they're mistreated by law enforcement, uh, they they learn very quickly. If you if if you call the police and you wind up, uh, you know, some of your friends or or, or family gets killed. Uh, right? You're not likely to call the police, okay? And, and so we have, uh, so the crime rate is much higher when the police do not respect the law, when, uh, when we have great 
uh, you know, um, Laura McDonald, head of or uh, executive director of Moore Square, claims that the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department has killed a couple of people a year uh, for, I don't know, the past eight years, maybe, or maybe twice that long. Um, I mean, most of the cops are honest, hardworking people and put their lives on the line to, to defend the rest of us. But they do not have a good process for uh, get, getting rid of the, uh, the um, cops who make the job difficult, who increase crime through their own criminality. U.S. News and World Report has its own problems in terms of validity and reliability. So I wrote an article that uh, critiques their evaluation of medical schools, for example. So that's what we're looking at. The other thing I'm interested in is your point about expert intuition. So are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work, Tipping Point? I've heard the name, but I haven't studied it. In there, he talks about what he calls, I think, the same thing you're calling expert intuition, I think, but that's my question. He talks about uh, mind splicing. I call mm -hmm. it informed intuition. Mm -hmm. And he gives the example that the J. Paul Getty Art Museum was offered a Greek sculpture for sale. Mm -hmm. The question, of course, was whether it was a fake or right. legitimate. So they did a bunch of research on it, brought the experts in, they evaluated, determined that it was real, and they bought it. Mm -hmm. They had an opening exhibition, and at that exhibition, three other art critics, we're familiar with that mm -hmm. period of sculpture, came in, and they all three said, this is not a legitimate sculpture, it's fake. Mm -hmm. And he looked, and it turned out that it was fake. So he was looking at how these, how we could have had the empirical People come in and evaluate, and yet we had these other three experts who came in, and he determined that it was their reliance upon informed intuition or expert intuition. So my question for you is, where do you see the role of expert intuition coming into play with these decisions? I, uh, I'm not prepared to talk about uh, uh, art criticism other than other than to say there's definitely a role for research uh and 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 uh, trying to understand the things in the long term um in in the economon 2021 book on noise a flaw in human judgment um they 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 say that well the if, especially if you've got a, uh, a, a situation where you've got a lot of variability between judges or within the same judge, you know, for very similar cases. Um, a simple rule of thumb developed by a, um, a, an intelligent layperson will at least have less noise, will have less variability, right? And the, the next level is actually to develop uh, a linear regression model. You know, I mean, uh, a simple lin uh, B0 plus B1 times one variable plus B2 times 
another variable and you fit the model to data using something called ordinary least squares that dates back to Carl Friedrich Gauss in the early 19th century. Uh, and actually before then, I think. But um, beyond that, they claim that artificial intelligence uh, can actually, if you've got lots of data, artificial intelligence can do a better job than, uh, than, um, than can uh, the simple heuristics uh, and the linear regression models. But for that, you need lots of data. And you also need to have access to what's the best answer. That's where we need uh, serious research on the long-term impact of the things that we want to what we want to do uh, or that, we, that we need judgment on. Do we have one more question? I guess we don't. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your presentation. Excellent. Uh, next week, we have two speakers, um, Ina Zacharias and uh, Logan Healy. will discuss our environmental health, particularly with reference to the Arkansas River and other waterways. So again, we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dial to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately, followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni, and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.